0: Well, good morning, church. If you will take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. Our passage today will be verses 13 through 35. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. As you turn there, as you make your way there, I want to begin reading there in verse 13, down through verse 35, as we hear these inspired words written by Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for our joy. Luke 24, verse 13 says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has indeed risen and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now that you would help us as we seek to understand all that took place on this road to Emmaus that you may strengthen our faith and our hope in you for your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever assumed the worst about a situation only to find out your assumptions aren't true? Think about that, how did you feel when you found out your assumptions didn't hold true? Maybe you got a refund during tax season and didn't know anything after all. Maybe it was the reverse. Maybe you actually passed the test. You assumed you failed. Maybe that check engine light on your car's dashboard isn't the end of the world after all. You don't need a new engine, just a new sensor. Assumptions not based on facts can be devastating. Today, we find ourselves in Luke 24 with two disciples who have assumed the worst about Jesus. On the very same day of the resurrection, These two disciples, these are two who are not part of the 11, just the broader group of the disciples, two disciples now walking away from Jerusalem to a nearby village, discussing even the things that they have recently experienced, the things that have happened to Jesus. And the text tells us they were sad. They were sad. In fact, we could even say they were having a crisis of faith. And yet, their sadness, their grief, was all based on a misunderstanding. It was all based on the wrong assumption pertaining to Jesus. They had misunderstood God's plan, a plan clearly revealed in the scriptures, and a plan clearly communicated by Jesus himself. This story of Jesus' encounter with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus is a story that's unique to Luke, only found in Luke's gospel, but one I believe that's, that's very important for us to, to get our minds around. I wanna remind you all the way back in Luke chapter one, Luke tells us the reason why he wrote this gospel. Back in chapter one, verse four it is that he says, he's, he's, he's saying uh, in verse, 3 it seemed good to me also having followed all these things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent theophilus why that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught so that's luke's reason as to why the holy spirit inspired him to write this gospel was so that certainty could be had could be enjoyed could be known. The reason this story is penned, the reason this story is present, was to provide certainty for the followers of Jesus Christ. It's true of everything in this gospel. So that those who read it may have certainty regarding the life and ministry of Jesus. And what we find here on the road to Emmaus were two disciples who lacked certainty. Their their faith was in crisis. They had assumed something about Jesus that was in fact wrong. And so, Jesus approaches them, these two disciples with a faltering faith. Jesus engages them in this most vulnerable moment of their lives in order to redirect them, to reorient them back to what was true so that they could have hope and so that their lives would be transformed with this renewed hope and faith. Brothers and sisters, I think the thing that we need to understand as we think about this text, we could point to many others as well, is that, that our faith will crumble when that faith is based on assumptions and not the truth of God's word. Your faith will will waver, it will falter, it will fail when you are believing something that you are simply assuming. But the resurrection of Jesus, in believing it, in seeing it, in in understanding the truthful truthfulness of it serves really then as the fuel of our confidence so that our faith could be firm. Despite what we may experience in the world, the resurrection is the guarantee of our hope. And when we believe in the living Christ, we need to understand that despite the darkness that we may experience in the world, that we can have a faith that doesn't falter, a faith that doesn't waver, but a faith that remains steadfast because Jesus lives. So as we look into the lives of these two disciples, we see really these two who are on a journey of faith, whose journey of faith resulted in struggle and then renewal, and how really the truth of the resurrection made all the difference in the world. So I want us to walk through this text. I want us to look at the two, the two realities of, of, of faith here, the, the struggle of faith, and then second, in a bit, we'll look at the renewal of faith. But let's look, first of all, at the struggle of faith, and we find that in verses 13 through 24 specifically. Luke sets this context up for us pretty well. In fact, he tells us it's that very day, and if you connect back to the resurrection account just prior to this account, we know that that very day is in reference to the same day of the resurrection. So as these disciples are making their way to this village named Emmaus, it's the same day that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's the same day that he's appeared. It's the same day that the tomb has been found empty. And these two... Again, not two of the 11, two of the broader group of the disciples have now left Jerusalem and are on their way to this nearby village. And as they make their way there, they're discussing all that had happened with Jesus. His arrest, his crucifixion, being buried in the tomb. And as they're discussing these things, we know that they're joined by what they thought was a stranger. Obviously, we have kind of a perspective on this scene that we're allowed to see early on that this was Jesus himself. They are kept from recognizing him. Verse 16, this, their eyes were kept from recognizing him is a, is a the way that that's written. It's really a reference to the fact that that's happened to them. They didn't keep themselves from seeing. They were kept, kind of a divine work it seems that they are kept temporarily from recognizing Jesus. Jesus. So Jesus walks up to them in verse 17 and it's basically like, Hey, what are y'all talking about? And their response tells us all we need to know about their perspective, or we could say their assumption regarding Jesus. and The recent events. Look at verse 17. He said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? and they stood still looking sad. Cleopas answers, we know the name of one of them, verse 18, whether this was a husband and wife or two friends just walking, we don't know, but one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know, who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And so Jesus, playing around with them a bit, says, what are you talking about, what things? And then they responded concerning Jesus of Nazareth, this man who mighty indeed of great prophet, we had hoped the one come redeem Israel, but was crucified, he was killed, he was murdered. It's interesting, Cleopas here reveals to the stranger all that's happened. And as he reveals this, he, the, 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 the posture of these two disciples is the fact that, that Jesus's death was it. Jesus died. We had hoped he was the Messiah, we had hoped he was the one to come redeem Israel, but he died. And so they're sad. What we find here friends is that their actions, the fact that they won are leaving Jerusalem and their words reveal to us absolutely no expectation of a resurrection. And thus they show, they demonstrate how they misunderstood Jesus and God's plan. They they underestimated what God had already promised he would do, they had underestimated that, they misunderstood that, they in essence didn't believe it and now we're on their way out of Jerusalem, sad and grieved because Jesus had died. No sense of expectation that Jesus would be raised from the dead as the Bible and as Jesus himself had promised. I want you to notice several things that they underestimate. The first thing is that they underestimated God's Messiah. Look at verses 19 through 21. Again, Jesus is interacting them, they're they're prohibited, they're kept from recognizing who he is, and they're saying, are you the only one that doesn't understand what's happened? He says, what things they, they go on to describe. expressing that they had hoped Jesus was the Messiah. What we see here is that they demonstrate still yet a a full-orbed understanding of who the Messiah was and what his mission was. They're still longing for a Messiah, a savior who would come and deliver them from Roman oppression. And when the chief priests were told and these religious leaders crucified, that hope was no more. Now, we should be fair to them and affirm them in the fact that they did believe Jesus was the Messiah. They, they say as much. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We know he was a prophet indeed, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. Their, their anticipation and this messianic expectation, it seems that they, they were rooting that in Jesus, at least for a time until he died. So their faith was misguided. They had underestimated the work of the Messiah. I think when we reflect upon a passage like this and we think about their their underestimating who Jesus was, that that's not a problem only for New Testament Jews. If you think that that's only a problem for New Testament Jews, then, then you would be greatly mistaken. There are many people today who believe in Jesus, but they either don't embrace the fullness of who Jesus is or they confuse him with something else entirely. Some see Jesus as a means to a better life. He's a means to an end. Some think he was simply a great example to follow. Others think his teaching was certainly quite moving. Others affirm him as a prophet, but God in the flesh, the redeemer, not so much. Brothers and sisters, this reminds us that you may believe many right things about Jesus and still be misguided in your understanding of his fullness. You can believe a lot of right things about Jesus, but if you miss the main thing about him, what good does that do you? We can affirm that he was a prophet. We can affirm that he was a great teacher. We can affirm all these things that people in the world who aren't Christians often affirm, and we can agree with them, but if we fail to understand his messianic fulfillment and the fact that he was the Messiah, God in the flesh, then we will fail to miss the main thing that he came to accomplish, which leads me to the second point I want to reference about their struggle of faith. They struggled because they underestimated God's Messiah, but they also struggled because they underestimated God's redemption, which is tied to the work of the Messiah. In verse 21, the disciples saved Jesus. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. They reveal their misunderstanding of what God meant in redemption. They didn't see a connection of atonement in the Old Testament the Old Testament to what Jesus would do on the cross in the new. As good Jews, they had hoped for a Messiah, but their hope for a Messiah was hope in a political Messiah. And they really couldn't conceive a Messiah who would come and suffer and die on behalf of the people. They saw, again, their their problem was that they saw that their greatest need was deliverance from Rome, not deliverance from sin and judgment. Therefore, when Jesus died on the cross, that was the end of their hope. Their great political revolutionary leader was no more. And thus their faith began to evaporate. Brothers and sisters, I would remind us again that we too can miss the point of God's redemption if we're not careful. we need to be reminded that our greatest need in the world, our greatest need is not the advancement of the right political platform. Our greatest need is not physical in nature. Our greatest need is not psychological. Our greatest need is spiritual. The fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins that we have rebelled against a holy God and are deserving of judgment because of that wicked rebellion against him. And therefore our greatest need in this world is to be reconciled to God who is holy. And if we misunderstand that that is our greatest need, we will also misunderstand the greatest work that was accomplished through Jesus's life and death and resurrection to bring us in a right standing With God we are sinners who have disobeyed God's law and stand guilty before him therefore our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven and be reconciled which is the very work Jesus comes to accomplish when he lives a life of perfect obedience to the law obeying where we didn't and then yet was crucified on a cross as a substitute for sinners, taking upon himself the judgment, shedding his blood to cover our sin, just as all the Old Testament prophecies and all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they had underestimated that. They weren't looking for that. They were looking elsewhere. Brothers and sisters, we need to hold firmly to that truth if we see Jesus as all these other things and miss the fact that he was the Lamb of God who came to be slain for sinners, then we too will miss the entire point of Jesus. You know, as we wait into this Christmas season, that's a huge temptation that we miss the point. But as we wait into this Christmas season, we are reminded that God sent forth his son not to be a political revolutionary or even a model teacher, he sent him to be the savior of sinners. Matthew chapter one and verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That is the work that Jesus comes to accomplish in redemption. And that is the hope that this world desperately needs to hear. That is what we want to raise 9,000 or more dollars for so that we can help get people to places where that's never been hurt. Or if Jesus has been named It's a lie of what's being taught about him. That's what we need for the sake of our own souls to be rightly reconciled to God so that we can walk in hope and in righteousness and truth. See, these disciples had underestimated God's work of redemption, therefore they missed the entire point. That's why they were sad. They didn't understand that what Jesus just did was to reconcile them to God and to forgive them of their sins once and for all. Don't underestimate God's redemption, but number three, they had underestimated God's power. Luke tells us that the same, this was the same day of the resurrection, the same day the tomb was found empty, still Sunday, and these two disciples even acknowledged the tomb had been found empty. This is amazing. They even acknowledged, yep, uh, some friends of ours, some, some women went to the tomb, and sure enough, there's a report of angels telling them that, the, that he's alive and sure enough, the tomb's empty, that we've even got others that have confirmed it. Imagine that, and they just keep walking away from Jerusalem. Even the report of an empty tomb did little to console or strengthen them. They were on the road to Emmaus, not in Jerusalem, looking for Jesus. Of course the irony of this passage is that they're telling Jesus the tomb was empty and in some way still denying that a resurrection had happened and they're telling that to the very one who'd been raised from the dead but it's a sad reality isn't it, that they don't seem to believe a resurrection had occurred sure something significant may have happened they're just not sure but there's no there's no anticipation from them that God had in fact raised Jesus from the dead. And therefore, they underestimate the power of God. For them, it seemed, at least in their demeanor, their sadness, their grief, even in their conversation with, with Jesus here, they're acting as if God had thrown them a curveball. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel and this is what we get, like he died. And I wonder if you've ever thought the same. Maybe you've experienced times when you thought God had thrown a curveball at you or pulled the rug out from under you. Has there ever been a moment when you look at your experience and wonder how could God have let this happen? Surely his plan would not have included this. If you've ever thought that, friend, which all of us have, you'd been in good company with these two disciples that day. But friends, what we see here in reference to Jesus coming alongside of them and what we'll see later in this passage is the reality is that no matter what you may feel or no matter what you may experience, none of that can deter the plan and promise of God from unfolding just as he said it would. If your faith is in the resurrected Christ, though trials may come, though difficulties may arise, those things don't have the final word. These disciples were grieving and feeling hopeless. And the ironic thing is Jesus is present right there in their midst and they didn't even realize it. I think the same thing could be true in our own lives. In the midst of darkness, sometimes we don't realize just how close Jesus really is. Obviously, obviously later on, things will change for these disciples. They do move from this faltering, struggling, wavering faith to a renewed one, which leads me to point number two, the renewal of faith. After these two disciples share all that they had seen and heard, Jesus then speaks. And what we find in his response and really the rest of this account is critical, I would say critical to having a thriving, stable, confident faith. These disciples didn't have much hope left in them. And by the time Jesus is finished with them, that had turned as a 180, that had changed. Their faith went from being shattered to a faith that was now renewed. So what was it that reoriented their faith? What was it that became a strong foundation to strengthen their confidence in God? Well, let's look at three things briefly here in this text. First of all, we know that their faith was renewed because it was a faith that was rooted in the scriptures. It was to be a faith reoriented to the Bible and then rooted in the Bible. Look at verses 25 through 27. After they finished saying what they had said about Jesus, hey, the tomb's empty, who knows what happened? We're still sad because we don't believe Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus responds, verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He calls them out. That's an understatement. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. He calls them out for their lack of faith specifically for their refusal to believe the Old Testament scriptures. That was their problem. They didn't believe the Bible. These were disciples. It could be true of some of you in this room that you really don't believe the scriptures as they've been written. You wrestle with things and you just don't believe what God said is true. They don't believe the Bible and he calls them out for that. They failed to believe all that that Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, this is a way to to refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law written by Moses, and the prophets had spoken. He's he's referring kind of as a a shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament, saying you failed to believe everything in the Bible. We don't have the New Testament yet. But as the Bible had been revealed up until this point, you hadn't believed it. The Old Testament makes clear the mission of the Messiah would be one that would require him to undertake suffering for sin and then glory. That's why Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? That the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer these things and enter his glory? Isn't that what the Bible said he would have to do? What do you think all of these sacrifices were for pointing to the one who would come and be the ultimate sacrifice? What do you think Isaiah meant when he was talking about Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant who would come and lay down his life? It was necessary because that's what God had revealed in the scriptures. And then he takes them through what's likely the most epic small group Bible study ever. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Two quick things I think we need to take away from their response regarding, from his response regarding the scriptures. Number one, we see the necessity of scripture. Look at me back at verse 26. Jesus rebukes them in verse 25 and then verse 26 he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, at that point, Jesus could have unveiled their eyes and said, hey, it's me. He could have. It would have been fine. Nothing wrong with that. He's going to do that later. He could have done that at verse 26, but he doesn't. He doesn't. What he does is he takes them back to the Bible and he walks them through the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and then the prophets, and he begins to unpack for them and interpret for them what the Bible taught regarding the Messiah. We don't know the passages that he used. Genesis 3 maybe, maybe it was the Genesis 22 passage or Day of Atonement, I mean, he could have used any number. He could have just walked them right through using many points of reference to explain the work of the Messiah. The point though here is this, The point Jesus is making is how we need to have a faith informed by the scriptures. It was more important for them to see Jesus in the Bible than it was for them to see him in the flesh. That's huge. He could have just unveiled their eyes and said, it's me, guys. It's true. I'm alive but he doesn't, he takes them back to the Bible so that their faith would be rooted in the objective standard of God's word. Just a reminder that the Bible is the place for us to get our knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. These disciples had drawn conclusions, they had made assumptions about Jesus, not based on the scriptures, based on something else in their own mind. You ever hear people say, well, I like to think of God as this, run. God has revealed himself in the Bible. He's revealed himself in the word. See, they've drawn conclusions on, about Jesus based on their experience, based on their wrong expectations, not what on the scripture actually said. Let that be a warning for us, friends. Do not interpret the Bible through your experiences. Let your experiences be interpreted by the Bible. Don't look at the world and draw conclusions as to what God is doing. Look at the word and draw those conclusions. The necessity of scripture, Jesus points that out. The Bible is necessary. It is necessary and it's sufficient. But then number two, the the Christ-centered nature of scripture. Look at what he says, he interpreted to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things what? Concerning himself. Jesus assumes his working assumption is that the Bible from beginning to end is about him. The message of the Bible is a message of redemption and that redemption is secured for us through the promise and the fulfillment of a coming redeemer. So as we read and interpret the scriptures, we must understand first and foremost that this is a book about Jesus, not a book about you. This is a book about Jesus. That means we can't properly read our Bibles until we see how it connects the life, ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. I like what Matt Smithers said in reference to this Christ-centered nature of the Bible. He says, contrary to popular belief, the Bible is not simply a collection of ethical principles, moral platitudes, or abstract life lessons. Imagine a single, unfolding, thrilling drama, a story of epic proportions that is more fascinating than your favorite fairy tale because it is true. That's God's word. And then he says, if we ever hope to properly handle the stories of the Bible, we must first grasp the story of the Bible. And that story, the one that traverses its way from Genesis to Revelation, though recorded for you is not finally about you, the focus is far higher and the hero far better. The Bible is about Jesus and he reminds them of that. Therefore their faith would be renewed and strengthened because it would now be a faith rooted and reoriented in the Bible, not in their assumptions. Second reason their faith was strengthened is that it's a faith strengthened by the presence of Christ. By Christ Himself. As Jesus and these disciples draw near to Emmaus, they, the evening's drawing near, and they begin to make preparations for their accommodations. And Jesus Kind of messes with them a little bit more, I think. And he acts like he's going to go further. He acts like he's just going right through. And they're like, hold on, it's late. Why don't you just stay with us? And so he does. Verse 29 records that. So he went in to stay with them. And then verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Luke is intentional, I believe, in making reference to this table fellowship because it's at the table, especially in this culture. The table was a place of fellowship, and I believe that's the point Luke is making here. He's showing us this this image now of Jesus being present in fellowship with his followers. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and then he vanished. But right before that, you see this this image of Jesus being present with the disciples. He breaks bread and gives it to them. And then they began to recount how their hearts burned within them when he had opened the scriptures to them on the road, on the way. The fellowship and presence of the resurrected Christ makes all the difference in the world. Luke is showing us that. Luke is showing us that Jesus is, has been raised and he is present with his people. And they're going to draw strength from that. When their eyes are open and he vanishes and he goes away, they, they understand who he is and they recount that their hearts had burned within them. They begin to connect the dots. We don't know exactly what it means that he opened their eyes. This, again, was being done to them. They didn't open their own eyes, their their eyes were opened. Was it the moment that as Jesus was breaking bread and passing that bread that they saw his hands and the nail scars in his hands, that they began to understand this in fact is our savior. This is Jesus. Friends, these same nail-scarred hands that broke bread with these two disciples are the same nail-scarred hands that are present to sustain and strengthen each one of us. Our faith is strengthened when we understand that Christ is present among us, that we are not abandoned in this world, but rather Christ is present. And then number three, it's a faith that's eagerly proclaimed to others. Once these two realize the stranger among them was in fact Jesus, their whole world changes. We're told that they rose at that hour and head back to Jerusalem, verse 33, where they find the eleven and those gathered there with them, and they report, hey, Jesus is alive. We just. We just saw, and they recount exactly what had happened. We just saw him. This will be the starting point of a newfound hope and sense of calling for them. And it's a reminder to us that those who encounter the resurrected Christ have much to rejoice in and have much to proclaim to others. Their faith was renewed. Because this text is powerful. Luke shows us through this example, through this this interaction of these two disciples with Jesus, Luke shows us just how foundational and transformative the resurrection of Jesus is to our faith. Without the resurrection, we we, we remain in our sins and our faith is futile, it's useless. One of the realities of living in this fallen world is that we will often feel the impact and weight of darkness. We will often assume certain things and come to wrong judgments. But the resurrection reminds us that God's Word is always true and that God's Word can be trusted, that God's power cannot be defeated. So, friends, do not let your faith be misguided. Don't underestimate. Don't underestimate the work of the Messiah, the power and presence of God in this world. Look to his word, rely upon the presence of Jesus and walk forward in unshaken faith because Jesus is alive. Luke wrote that so that you could have confidence that that is indeed true. So friend, let that be the source of your faith. Let that be the encouragement to your faith no matter where you are in this world. No matter your circumstances, no matter your fears, no matter your your experiences, let the reality of the resurrection be a strong and solid foundation for your hope. And may your faith remain unshaken until Christ comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for inspiring Luke by your spirit to record this account for us of Jesus' interaction with these two disciples. Father, it shows us just how off the mark we can be when our faith is not rightly rooted in truth. Father, it shows us that Only sadness and grief and despair exist when our faith is not rightly connected to the resurrected Christ. Whether it may be that some in this room right now are struggling with fear or anxiety or worry. They feel the weight of this dark world upon them and they are really struggling right now. Lord, would you renew and strengthen their faith because Jesus lives. Would you help their faith and their hope to be rooted not in better circumstances or something different, but Lord, in the fact that you have promised a savior and he came, he lived and he died and he rose on the third day so that we might have victory and hope forevermore so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be rightly reconciled with you. Lord, would you remind us of these things this morning so that our faltering and wavering faith could be strengthened so that we can look to you and have hope. Lord, we thank you for all that's been accomplished for us, for our redemption, for our reconciliation, and that that and that alone would be the source of our hope and our joy and our peace. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.